there is no real solution for real searchability and, and accessibility for my content. I would go down a rabbit hole on, say, Netflix. Maybe I'm interested in zombie style of stuff on Netflix, like Army of the Dead. But what Netflix didn't know is that maybe my wife and I are watching Marvelous Miss Maisel over on Amazon. So there's no portability of my of my profile, of my watch behavior. So discoverability of new things that might be of interest to me on different platforms weren't floating and being elevated up. So I wasn't necessarily optimizing or fully realizing the value of some of the subscriptions that I had. Compound onto that, this price point of having all of these platforms, it was just, like I said, the song's going to end and and I don't know what it's going to look like yet, but there's some problems that we're all having here. And so we started looking at what a solution for that might look like. And I went back to a documentary that we financed a number of years ago called Screened Out. And one of the guys that was interviewed in the documentary, it was like an anvil hitting my head. He he said in the film, he goes, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all these platforms, they're free for you. So understand that you're the product being sold. Hello, and welcome to the Resolve Rifts Investment Podcast, where the science of investing meets real-world application. Join Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Richard Latterman of Resolve Asset Management as they bring their extensive investment experience to bear on deep dives into the current market trends, optimal portfolio construction, and risk management techniques helping animate the world of quantitative investing with a global macro perspective. This podcast is a must-listen for professional capital allocators seeking to navigate the complexities of global markets with skill and confidence. Welcome to the journey. Adam Butler, Mike Milbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. All opinions expressed by the principals are their own and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Resolve Rifts Investment Podcast. And today we have a very special guest, William Santor, co-founder and CEO of Productivity Media, a leading producer and financier of late-stage film and television productions. Welcome, William. How are you doing today? Good, Rodrigo. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And you're certainly more than that financier and producer of films. We're going to get into your past a little bit, which I've all, I found fascinating as I got to know you over the last few months and talk a little bit about your ventures too in the future on the augmented reality space, as well as the streaming arena. We normally dig deep into quantitative investing here on the podcast and uh, macro trends, but I think talking about financing in film will be very interesting to our audience. So why don't we get into it by getting to know you a little bit, William? Tell us about your fascinating, humble beginnings and where you started and how you got here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, like you and I were talking about a couple of weeks ago, it's, it's interesting where people start and where they end up. And I think it's sometimes very accidental and just following the, the path of life. I actually grew up on a hobby farm that my parents bought back in the mid 70s, just outside of Hamilton, Ontario. And spent the better part of my life, my youth, at least anyways, living the farm life. 
Um, like I said, it was a hobby farm. It wasn't a working farm. It was a passion of my dad's and actually bought it specifically for the purposes of building his dream house on this property. And I'm not sure if it was a, a labor of love or a love of labor, but they actually didn't like debt. So they built this house incrementally bit by bit, year over year. So from the ages of gosh, I guess it would have been 12 when they first excavated for, uh, for the house to when, unfortunately, sadly, my dad passed in 1999. The house still wasn't complete. My mom, for the very first time at the age of 54, took out her very first mortgage in her entire life. And actually seeing how that impact of my dad's passing, even though both my parents were teachers and had strong pensions, strong benefits, but the financial havoc that had on their life made me make a, a big change into financial services. And that was the beginning of the trajectory of what ended up me up here. But over that time, as we were talking about earlier, spent a lot of time in the pool swimming competitively, which is a really interesting experience. And just took a, a very you know varied path. Initially went to school for kinesiology. So nothing with finance in it in any way, shape or form whatsoever. But like I said, sometimes life takes you in interesting directions. So, and, so uh, with, with, so you went from swimming, but you uh -huh. were a pretty like competitive swimmer. What was it? The backstroke? Yeah. And so, yeah, so competing nationally, competing at the national level, backstroke was my specialty. Yeah. And that led you to kinesiology because I imagine that's what you dedicated. It can't be easy to be a top competitive swimmer, right? It's, this is the thing about athletes. You do the same thing over and over again, especially swimmers. I would say swimmers, rowers. It is the most mind-numbing and repetitive. It's not even a game of inches. It seems to be a game of millimeters. And yeah. how do I go from inches to millimeters? I love that. The it, it seems to be a very, I don't know what type of mindset you have to have, what type of personality type gets you into that. Uh, the other thing about swimming is that your head's in the water and you can't even put headphones in. And yeah. if you're sitting on a bike, you, can, you got stuff that's passing you by. You might have headphones in if you're running or doing even rowing, you've got headphones in. Swimming, you're face down in the water. I swim a lot and I keep looking for these headsets or waterproof ear sets to be able to listen to podcasts or what have you. I've tried a few of them, but I haven't found anything that really is very useful. Yeah, so, so I that, guess from that perspective, I think it's great. It, it is. It's, I, I always used to say you're either staring at the, the black line of the bottom of the pool or you're staring at the sky, depending on what stroke you're working on. And it's monotonous and, and repetitive to your point. Like I'd be in the pool probably at the latest 5 a.m. in the morning through until about 8, get out, then go to school, go through school the, the, throughout the day, be back in the pool by 4 p.m. at the latest until about 8 or 9 at night, go home, do your homework after that point, you know, finally put some food in the stomach, get to bed and get up and do it again the next day. And you're doing that five, six days a week. What I found it was interesting for me, because to your point, Adam, about how do, how do you regulate and get some other things, what I actually found worked for me, my, my one coach and I worked on this, because stroke count through the length of a pool is, is trying to optimize that is, is really important. So what I found for me was singing. So I would sing in my head, finding the song that has the right tempo to meet your stroke counts or try to push a little bit more. And you want a way of taking that monotony out of it because we've all done it, whether it's swimming, running, you know, riding a bike, cutting the lawn, just singing a song in your head. It's amazing how much that can just turn the experience 
from something that you just want to you know put hot needles in your eyes to having a fun time. And Adam, that might actually work for you. Like, audience, you wouldn't know this, but uh, I had recently gone to a karaoke event with Adam and Mike, and Adam got a hold of that microphone and was hitting all the notes, found out that the man had been practicing for years. He is a newfie. He hides it very well. <laughs> but those Newfoundlanders, they know how to sing. They know their instruments, and Adam is no exception. Maybe that's a strategy you could start deploying, don't you think, Adam? Absolutely. Yeah. Hit me up for any karaoke opportunities. I am your Huckleberry. (laughs) (laughs) He surprised everybody. It was fantastic. I love being surprised with somebody you know for as long as we do. So I guess the question is, what type of personality do you need to have in order to do that at the highest level? Obsessive compulsive? (laughs) I I don't know. That's It's one that I think I can only speak for myself. I obviously can't speak for any of the others that that I knew back then. But yeah, it was just something that it's a personality type where you're just always yearning that to your point earlier, that that extra millimeter, that extra millisecond, you'll find, you know, finding success in the smallest ways and being fine tuned and, and hearing things. It's it, it doesn't mean it's going to work all the time. You're going to try something new. You're going to experiment and you're going to see, oh, I lost some time on that one. Oh, I picked up some time here. But it, it's it, it's trying to find it's trying to find those inches. It, it really is. And so that obviously you do, you spend a lot of time in the pool and you're looking to find a profession from it. You go into kinesiology. That makes sense, right? That's yeah. a na- natural extension. So what happened from there? <laughs> Very quickly found that I was now officially literally a duck out of water. And uh, I was looking at that as potentially a pathway for pre-med and really found that once I took that interest out of that one space and tried to put it into something else, it, it wasn't as, as attractive to me that I thought it was going to. Kinesiology at the time was really meant, okay, you know, like I said, you're either go- using it for pre-med or you're going to become physiotherapist. At that time, physiotherapy wasn't the industry that it is today. So I started looking around and saying, okay, what am I going to do with this? And decided that, like I said, duck out of water and decided to to make a change. Now, I didn't know what that change was going to be yet. So it's okay. How do I apply what I know, which is body mechanics? And yeah, it's, it's always the most, most bizarre things that happen. Answered an ad in a newspaper and ended up teaching ballroom and Latin dancing for five years. Now, you guys can imagine that I'm, I'm sitting across the whitest Canadian I've ever seen in my life. And I'm a Peruvian who's danced his whole life. Like I can tell from a mile away who's the type of person that can get hit the dance floor when the music starts. William was the last person that I would have imagined. But <laughs> the man is a pro ballroom dancer and is a circuitous route to finance. So how many years did you do that for and, and what changed? Yeah, just about, I did that for around five years. And again, it, it, it's the same sort of mindset or mentality of looking for the inches Fortunately, having years of body awareness, because Adam, you'll appreciate this. When you're swimming, the difference between a hand position like this and a hand position like this can have a fundamental change on the output of your horsepower to move you through the pool. I was always finding those similar things for my students that I was teaching. What are those micro adjustments that they could be making to to propel themselves forward in their desire to learn how to, to be a better dancer? And then with my own abilities as well, too. 
So it was, there was a nice parlay from that side of it over. What changed was the passing of my dad. When that happened, as I mentioned earlier, the, the impact of, you know, you know, we, we grow up thinking, okay, great, get a job that has a good pension, has good benefits, stable income, all this type of stuff. And my dad was retired. He had done his time. He spent decades teaching and had his pension, was receiving that benefit, had his benefits still because being a teacher in Ontario, arguably, I think one of the most influential unions almost anywhere in the world with one of the best packages. And yet here, my mom still working was financially distraught after my dad had passed. Mm -hmm. And it was so anthemic to everything that I understood to be true about the world at that time, that that's when I started exploring, what does this mean for my family? What does it mean for me? And how can this be different? And that's when I, as a result of that search, just stumbled into financial services. So started on that pathway. And again, same sort of thing, found very quickly square peg round hole. I I think a consistent theme in my life almost where where's the place that I don't fit in? Let's jump in there. (laughs) And only after a while of seeing that you sometimes can't change this world, let's look for a new world then that we can be disruptive and we can change as best we can and go forward from there. So you get into kind of finance and you started in the Canadian wealth space. Yeah. But you quickly pivoted into... I think an area that you, you're the first person in Canada that I thought that I know that has gotten into this in, in the way that you have. So how did you get into financing and specifically film financing? As we said in, the, in our drinks last week, how dare you? As how how small, dare small me? Town Canada yeah. boy decide that you want to go to Hollywood and build a business around it. It's you, you and I were talking about this the, and I wish I could remember who it was that said it. But the the old quote, it's your attitude, not your aptitude, that'll determine your altitude. And you combine that with the acronym for fear, false evidence appearing real. And so many people, I think, set their own limitations first before anybody else ever set anything for them. You can sit there and say, how dare you? But also you can at the exact same time say, why not? And it's always been, I think, that type of idea of why not? And as opposed to is the answer binary, yes or no, it's not always about yes or no, it's about how as well. So there's so many different ways to ask those foundational questions that can really have a monumental change in the output that you get as a result of that. I was working in financial services in Canada and I was doing some private wealth work And a colleague of mine who had a friend who was a producer said, hey, they're looking to raise some money. Have you ever considered film? My first response was, heck no, which then escalated to hell no when he asked the second time. And we asked the third time, I used a more explicit response to him and finally got to the point where I'm like, you know what, if I just give the guy 45 minutes and hear him out, at least I can say I've heard you out and it's still going to be no. And what he said was really interesting, which was, hey, you do know that in Canada, at least anyways, the governments have these rebates that they'll pay upon completion of the film. And I said, are you talking about the old limited partnership flow throughs? And he's no, he goes, they changed the program in 94. It's like a cash rebate program now. 
And RBC and BMO and a bunch of the other banks have been financing against these receivables for, you know, basically since 94. Um, so what in my mind was going to be a 45 minute, okay, I'll hear you out, then show you out, turned into a three hour conversation. And I was like, this is really interesting because you guys know it's when you're looking in the markets for opportunities, especially for those of us that operate in in the Canadian space, it's where is there a space that actually really truly has a moat that isn't just inundated, even even things like factoring receivables on in a traditional place, it's very crowded, you're competing for deal flow. So all of the alpha is getting stripped out. Where are those corners of the universe where maybe something like perception is keeping people out because they perceive it to be one way versus it being another, or there's administratively barriers, there's uh, relationship barriers, things that you just can't do sitting at a trading terminal. And as we got deeper and deeper in this conversation, I was like, wait a second, what, what you're basically talking about here is a synthetic govy. Right. You know, I'm actually getting a check back in in the Canadian context. I'm actually getting a check back from CRA. That's the Canadian government's balance sheet. That has nothing to actually do with the production other than the the fact that the production triggered the activity to result in this receivable coming from CRA. No different than any of our personal returns or a corporate return or things along those lines. And in fact, actually, it is actually a corporate return that's getting filed that triggers this. It's all ensconced in the Income Tax Act in Canada. So that was the one thing that was interesting. And then the other side was the, what we'll refer to as, if that's the govy side, the, the corp side. As these productions are being put together at various stages, they're being sold to different distributors, whether that be the big folks like the Netflixes or Sonys or the Universals of the world. Great, that happens. But as well, there's a whole home entertainment part of the business with companies like Vertical and Saban and Telepool in Germany, a a bunch of others that manage massive volumes of business and are turning over revenue on on a regular basis that, again, the producers need some form of interim financing against those pieces. So we started looking at it and say, okay, we've got a synthetic govy on this side. We've got a synthetic corp on this side. Many of these parties as well too i already have in my public portfolio so isn't this kind of you already like the counterparty risk yeah so isn't this interesting that i could now get a private version of this where i'm actually not even negotiating with the end counterparty i'm negotiating through this proxy being the producer who have these receivables and that for them it's really about match timing their production, which as you can imagine, you've got cast, you've got crew, you've got locations, you've got all of these different competing things that are trying to almost pull this production part at the seams as opposed to actually causing it to go together. And the biggest challenge that producers have is not just getting their cash, but getting their cash in a timely fashion that actually allows them to keep that train on the tracks. So what's really interesting is that the inefficiency in the marketplace for producers to raise capital is really what generates the return. It's not 
a traditional risk return profile that you might think of in other markets. So walk me through that again, because again, in my naive mind here, a film, somebody comes up with an idea, they sell the script, the producers put it together, they get 100% of the financing, they have a budget, they produce the film, they're gone. But obviously what you're describing is something much more convoluted than that. And it seems to be more of a stepwise process. So can you walk me through a typical from soup to nuts? Well, uh, I, I first to selling a yeah. product and then even after selling, how does that work? Yeah, I first thing I'd say is there's probably no t- nothing is typical. Right. There's probably a very wide berth as far as what would fall into that category of typical. But usually for us, we're seeing stuff at a stage. And again, we see it all over. But when we start getting excited from a financing perspective is they already have their a portion of their financing in place and it may be one percent it may be fifty percent again typical is hard to say what that would look like they'll have their budget will have that budget had an opportunity based on the jurisdiction that they're shooting in because we've been talking about the canadian context but it's also important to note that there's a lot of very competitive programs on a state-by-state basis across the u.s the uk australia new zealand italy germany france all have programs that are very comparable to this. In fact, if a jurisdiction wants to be competitive in the sector, they pretty much have to have some sort of program at the sovereign or sub-sovereign level. So really, at the end of the day, we look at where they're shooting, what the budget is, what the program looks like in that jurisdiction. In Canada, for example, between the provincial and federal level uh, of government, if you're probably going to be looking at anywhere from about 20 to 30% of the Canadian spend significantly weighted towards labor will come back in the form of a rebate upon completion. So again, if we're looking at a $10 million budget, you're probably looking at a rebate coming back in the two to $3 million range. The nice thing is, like I was saying earlier, these programs are very well ensconced in the Canadian context in their Income Tax Act, which means it's all rule-based. Spend this much money here on this line item, get this much money back. So you can test this right from day one. You want to talk about quant. This is great. This Here's your input. Here's your output. It's really, it's fair, fairly benign in that regards. So that's the one piece. So we can look at that and we can test that and say, okay, based on this, you guys are going to have this receivable of X, let's say $3 million. Here's what our financing would look like. We'll hold back the interest, we'll hold back any accretive return, any fees, any costs associated with that. We'll give them the net amount. Let's say for argument's sake, we give them nice round numbers, 2 million. Let's say it's a two-year term and basically almost like a zero coupon bond accrues back up to its par value at maturity. We then have that $3 million receivable directionally assigned to us and we collect from the asset self-realizing to cash. We don't actually have to go out and sell it in any way, shape or form. The distribution and sales side of things works fundamentally in a very similar fashion. They've gone out and they'll have both pre-sold and unsold rights. Think of it almost like real estate development. You're going to pre-sell a certain number of units before you start construction and you'll have a certain advance rate against that. Then you'll have all of your unsold units and you'll have a much lower advance rate against those but you've already determined what market value is going to be. Same sort of uh, concept applies over here. So if Sony's come in using them as an example earlier, or even one of the home end guys like Vertical or RLJ or Saban, hey, we want to buy this film and we're going to buy it for $5 million. Again, 
conceptually same thing. What are the loan economics for that? We're going to have that uh, receivable directionally assigned to us, hold back, reserve back, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we're giving them 3 million against that 5 million self-realizing based on the, the terms of that contract, whether it's lump sum all on delivery or whether it's milestone or amortized over a period of time. The great thing is we can test that at the early stages as far as how we designed the loan around it. So then for us, the great thing is, is that as we're looking at sleeving a new transaction into our portfolio, we can negotiate pricing based on what the incremental or effective rate is the impact that that's going to have on the return of our fund. So what we've been able to do, A, they're privately secured and negotiated loans. So we're not influenced by all these exogenous events. B, we know what the exit is before we get in. And C, we're able to determine the pricing is going to fit for our fund. So what we've been able to do since inception, which is coming up on, I guess will be uh, 11 and a half years now, we've had a standard deviation that's below half a percent. And that includes going through COVID, even the actor strike recently, a lot of the, the interest rate increases that we've seen over the last year. A lot of those things historically to date, knock on wood, haven't, haven't been enough to throw us off our, off our course. Now, listen, never say never, but it's a really interesting thing that we've seen that even from having been on the other side of the table as an allocator, not seen things like this yeah. that have these types of characteristics. Obviously, it's important to note that, we, as we've said many times in this podcast before, there's some value in being able to smooth out returns over time because all your stuff has to be, because it's private, it has to be done on an accounting basis, right? And so yeah. there's no real way to mark to market what you would be able to sell all of those all those loans on a day-to-day basis. And that's the advantage of being in the private space for sure. For, for us, it's pretty easy. It's basically... Our issue plus accrued interest, less perceived impairment. Right. And our administrators and auditors just hammer down on us on that impairment side every single day. Tell me why this shouldn't be impaired. Tell me why this shouldn't be impaired. So, and, so yeah. as long as you're you got a bunch of guarantees from the different governments and jurisdictions that you play with, what you is there other sides of that you play in that takes a lot more risk? Do you get into the equity side of things at any point? Hold on, before we move on from that, because I found this to be a really interesting dimension as we chatted um, a few weeks ago, I understood that the rebate from, the tax rebate from the government is contingent on project completion, right? Yeah. So there, But there's another dimension of that alleviates the risk that the project doesn't complete. And so maybe dig into that as well. Sure. That, that's a, a great point, Adam, because that was uh, the thing when I was first looking at this many moons ago, that was very quickly identified as a, the core fundamental risk is, and we all hear about the old water worlds of days gone by, oh, it's gone massively over budget, or this film just got kicked to the can. What does that mean for me if I'm financing against these receivables and the film, quote unquote, isn't completed? Again, much like in construction finance, where you would have a surety bond on your general contractor, in film, they have completion guarantees or completion bonds that you can put on play in place on the production. And there's a, a couple of predominant insurers on this side, one of them being film finances, which has very significant market share with a large syndicate of all the usual suspects that you would 
imagine seeing behind the scenes on the reinsurance side of it. So super strong balance sheets there from that perspective. But ultimately, at the end of the day, their job is to basically ensure delivery, make sure the film gets completed on time, make sure that it gets completed on budget. And if it doesn't get completed on time or on budget, it's their job to step in and fill the hole. Now, again, from a reasonability test, if they came and said, hey, we're going to be three weeks or four weeks late delivering the film. Yeah, you want to be a good corporate citizen and say that makes no sense in why we wouldn't work collaboratively here. If they came and said, hey, it's going to be another nine months before you know we can deliver the completed film, then yeah, we'd probably call on that completion guarantee. The other thing, like I said, if the film were to go over budget, let's use this $10 million example film that we were talking about earlier. If they were to go over budget by, let's say, $200,000, it's the guarantor's obligation to put in those funds. But interestingly, they have to put in those funds to still make sure that it delivers on time as well. Now, if the costs to complete are going to be so significant that it doesn't make sense, the insurer could call an abandonment on the project. But in those instances, they'd have to be, they would have to pay us out. We actually, the way in which we've negotiated our position, because we're now one of the largest non-bank lenders in the space in North America. So we actually get terms that most individual producers wouldn't be able to get themselves doing one or two titles a year. So we actually negotiated with the guarantors that they're not only covering 100% of our principal, but they're also going to cover our interest during the primary term of of our transaction period for for any of our loans that we do. So it's an entirely covered position in that event of non-completion. So loan and returns are guaranteed by... Yeah. Up to that point of non-completion, right? Now... Again, if you're dealing, there's other risks, right? What happens if, say, for example, the the sovereigners, the sub-sovereign change the rules during that period of time? Now, historically, we've always seen that productions that were in process would be grandfathered under old rules, right? The jurisdiction doesn't want to have to get into what would likely end up being as a massive, probably class action lawsuit, but you sit there and say, stuff happens. So you need to sit, is it possible? Is it probable? Of course it's possible. Is it probable? I think it's minuscule. We've never seen it happen historically, but that's not to say that it couldn't happen. So that would be on the govy side. On the corporate side, could a counterparty potentially become insolvent? Absolutely. But that's where, again, look for good diversification of your counterparty risk. You look at who actually are your counterparties in it as well, too. And then also, what do you do from a a negotiation and contracting perspective when you're securing those rights in the event of insolvency, making sure that you've got reversion rights, the asset comes back to you to remonetize in other ways as well, too, to minimize any potential impact on those things. There's a lot of protective measures. And as we all know, nothing is ever, never truly guaranteed. You put on the belts, you put on the suspenders, you try to do as much as you can. And sometimes stuff happens irrespective of all the protection measures that you put on place. And so even through COVID, um, effectively for most of COVID, probably except for the very early months where everyone was still getting sorted out, the projects mostly were fulfilled, right? Films were, they continued to, to production and, and were completed. And I'm sure there were a few modifications of terms, et cetera. But overall, the deals came through. That would, 
be an interesting example of what you would think would be a nice stress test against this kind of model. But in yeah. the end, it it was pretty clean. For us, I'll sit there and put my hand up and say we were dumb lucky with COVID. It just so happened in March of 2020 when the world shut down. A, ma- the majority of the projects that we had in, in at various stages, a lot of them had just finished or or had recently finished their principal photography period, so had moved into post-production, which was a lot easier to adapt to a remote work setting. You don't have to have 100, 150 people coalescing around this one location day in and day out. In that particular month, when the world shut down and we were looking around like everybody else as far as what's happening, we, we were fortunate in that instance. Now, if we were to look at the language in the completion guarantees at the time, the insurers actually, pandemics were, were still technically, and they were, let me rephrase it, they were not an excluded event. Right, they weren't explicitly named as a force majeure type of situation. Correct. I, I know from our conversations with a lot of the insurers, there there was significant payouts that had to be made in order to complete those films. Now, again, this is that was once in a lifetime, once in a hundred year thing. So like in many industries, people sat there and said, OK, let's work collaboratively and, and figure out what what we need to do. And there's a lot of folks that weren't as fortunate as we were, because like I said, we just happened to be in this window in our production pipeline, where a lot of the stuff that we had that was where we had already deployed capital was post-principal photography. But what would have Um, happened? In in one case, probably a lot of projects went under, but in the other case, these insurers would have had to pay, one presumes, given that they didn't have that force majeure clause in there. So you, as always, when you're dealing with a failed project and dealing with the insurers, I would imagine it's less the income that you were expecting was going to be lower but and and there's going to be months and months of possibly litigation is that the outcome to if you had gotten caught with your hand in the cookie jar yeah less so in this one as far as the litigation perspective because the contracts are pretty pretty clean film finances has been doing this for 75 years so this isn't a new or recent product that they came up with five, 10 years ago. They've been doing it for the better part of three quarters of a century. Right. And so it's a pretty well-trodden pathway. What the lo- most likely scenario would have been is one of two, two outcomes. So if we had a bunch of productions that were shooting at the time when everything shut down, they would have shut down as well too. Everyone would have gone home as we all had to do at that time. And then when we were permitted to start shooting again, then wrangling the cats again, getting your cast and crew and locations back together again. And whatever those cost overruns would have been associated due to that event, that's then when film finances or whoever the insurer guarantee would have to then start writing checks to pay for those increased costs. The other alternative then is you just call it an abandonment on the film. But again, that's where we would be relying on the the insurance to, to cover our cost out. Like I said, we were lucky. You know, I know a bunch of other folks who had to go through that cycle of ramping down and ramping back up. And it was tricky. They got it done, but it was uncomfortable for them. So moving on to why you exist in the first place, why there is a place for you to finance in the first place. You could imagine that you have all these films being produced. Um, there's, I imagine, financiers everywhere, banks everywhere willing to finance these films. You, you seem to get a higher interest rate out of your loans. Why is it that you can do that? And how does that work in the ecosystem? 
Sure. So a couple of things as far as what the financing market looks like. Interestingly, is idiosyncratic based on the jurisdiction. In Canada, as an example, it's pre- predominantly organized by a couple of the, the large Canadian banks. By market share, you're looking at generally National Bank, RBC, and BMO as the main three in the space in Canada. And then beyond that, there, there are a couple of Canadian government programs, say Telefilm, for example, at the federal level. And then the key provinces in the, in the space being Quebec, Ontario, and B.C., by monies spent in each jurisdiction each year. They also have some provincial programs to backfill in that equity tranche that doesn't really exist from a private equity markets perspective in Canada for the sector. In the US, what was interesting when we first started looking at it, it, we always generally rule of thumb, whatever happens in Canada, you 10x and that's your base baseline for the US. So if we've got three or four bank lenders in Canada, we should have 30 to 40. Problem is that the US is much more fragmented regional banks. We don't have the big monolithic banks in the US by numbers like we do in Canada. And they're not small checks either, right? It's a small transaction is a couple million dollars just to really start eating in on a competitive basis within the marketplace. It's not like a mortgage where you might be able to do $350,000 mortgage and you know have a, a bunch of those in your portfolio, even with $2 million, you're one loan. Mm-hmm. So what we actually found was that there wasn't the same proliferation as we would have imagined because of that fragmentation and regionalization of the banking sector in the US. However, there is a, a larger private equity market filling in that that equity tranche. But as a producer, it's what what's your network look like? In Canada, once you've made those three or four phone calls to the big banks, where do you go next? There isn't a, a big swath of folks. So we see a lot in that regards. And, you know, the banks are, are going to do great as far as if you have the ability to get the cheapest money on the market, they are going to be the cheapest money on the market. But they're also going to be a recipe lender. Check the boxes the way we need you to check them. You need to conform specifically into our recipe. And it's going to be slower and generally more bureaucratic in the process. We had this one story where a producer came to us and it was one of the big Canadian banks. They had approved the loan and they said, okay, approve the loan. It's going to be six weeks before we can get you in funds. And they're like, we're going to have finished shooting our film by then. So they came to us with their hair on fire. We pivoted and we were able to go through the entire due diligence and closing process and get them in funds in two and a half weeks. Now, that that was everybody running at a real clip. We don't like doing that, but that's, you know, the, what's the time value of that money to the producer was monumental to them in, in that instance. So a lot of it comes down to relationship and network. A lot of it is also the fact that we how we built our team productivity, we actually have people that have spent years in the trenches as directors, as producers, as line producers, as distributors and sales agents. So we've actually seen this, as I like to say, from concept to couch. And so we're able to understand the dynamic of like I said earlier, there's some very little that's typical. We understand the dynamics of it and looking for those inches on how do we save the producer something over here 
to offset an increased cost over here. For example, yes, our interest is going to be significantly higher than the bank interest. We're a private hard currency lender. We're going to be amongst your most expensive money. However, as I said earlier, because of the volume that we deal with, the pricing that we get from the completion guarantors is actually the same pricing as they give to the studios. And we're able to pass that through to the producer. And that might save them anywhere from 75 to 100 basis points on their cost of insurance. Right. So we start finding those inches in non-conventional ways and coming to the table as a collaborative and looking for ways to help them with their challenges and find solutions for them because we're seeing them 20 times a year instead of once or twice a year really makes a, a big difference in why somebody wants to work with you as opposed to it just being about the price. It seems like the banks, like you said, cookie cutter, here's your loan, here are our terms, and they're not getting involved. What I understood from you is that you seem to be almost like an activist or you have the ability to be an activist if a deal is going south, if you feel like you and your team can fix it or get the right connections to complete it, you, you can do that in ways that a bank would, simply will not. Yeah, we're not a bank. If in the event that there was something that we had to impair, that's more material for us. How that affects our returns would be much more significant. So as a result, we're going to look under every single stone to find a solution to not have that event because it's in our best interest. It just so happens to also be in the best interest of the producer or should be in the best interest of the producer. But first and foremost, it's in our best interest to pick up the phone call somebody that we know that might be able to facilitate a transaction or a deal or get a lower cost on something, leverage our network and relationships and balance sheet to to your advantage as our borrower is as much self-serving to us as it is you know, beneficial to you. I, I, I think so many people get caught up in this idea of it has to be a zero-sum game, and I don't think it does. Help enough people get what they want, you'll eventually get what you want. And the law of reciprocity is a real thing. Might sound naive to sit there and say, but I've just seen it too many times. So what is the payoff distribution for film finance? Not on the equity side, right? The payoff distribution for on the debt side is fairly predictable, right? With some potentially interesting edge cases that are for the most part managed. But it strikes me that film the, on the equity side, it's more like a venture payoff where you've got a lot of projects that everyone who produces a film, I assume, expects that film to be a, a big success. A lot fewer are big successes than are expected to be big successes. What exactly does that distribution look like? And how do you participate on the equity side? And how do you expect that to contribute to the bottom line for investors over the long term? Yeah, so it's really interesting. For us, even on the debt side, we always take some form of carried interest that can take a number of different shapes. But we always position ourselves that way. If there's a breakout on on one of the titles, we're positioned to benefit from that as well, too. Historically, there's been some really interesting things that have shifted over the years, and especially over the last, I'd say, three to five years in distribution, where even distribution has become much more democratized. Uh, But that's a double-edged sword. Right. It makes it easier to come to market 
on the distribution side, but that also then means that it's a much more crowded market. So how do you break through on that and communicate around that? So that way, when people are looking for something to go and watch, and especially now with the world being what it is, we have so many different ways in which to access content. It even becomes, you know, more more scattered in in how we and where we can look for stuff. What what's interesting, I think, in the way in which people historically are propositioned the opportunity to invest in film, it's generally on a one-off basis right? It's idiosyncratic. I've got a selection of one that I'm invested in. And so I I don't have the ability to have that return profile cross-collateralized against a, a portfolio. Because again, as we were talking about earlier, even a small project, you're talking, your starting point is seven figures. And that's for what would be a micro budget film. If you're talking about something where You've got films that maybe are in the five to ten million dollar range on average. You'd probably want to have a portfolio, a slate of films on the equity side of anywhere from about 10 to 20 titles. So now you're looking at anywhere from 50 to 100 million dollars that you'd need to have allocated to appropriately diversify the risk. So that way, the films that are underperforming are offset by the ones that perform as expected and then better. It's ironically not dissimilar from your tech VC world, right? We're not going to throw all of our eggs in one basket and we're all going to diversify in all of our sectors that we're investing in. But we anticipate that a couple of these are going to go to zero. We anticipate some of them are going to come close to recouping. And out of that 10 to 20, maybe two to four of them are going to be the breakouts that then absorb the losses on the rest of the portfolio. It actually, even when we do a full actuarial study and and look at what's happened in the marketplace, very predictably, that's what you end up seeing is out of a slate of 10 films, you're probably going to have anywhere from five to seven that are going to underperform and the rest is going to carry the entire portfolio. And what's interesting especially as like we were talking the other day, Rodrigo, with large language models and the way in which we can look at a data today versus even four years ago, we actually invested in a company seven years ago, an AI company that was doing large language models and predictive analytics on key markers or key ingredients or genomes to films that overperformed expectations to ones that underperformed expectations. And we basically ran a five-year study with this company. And it was interesting when we first met these guys, they were using their model to trade derivatives of DreamWorks animation films. DreamWorks at the time was about a $2 billion market cap. Any single film would have a production budget of around 200 to 250 million. And it was a pure play as well. It didn't have other adjacent businesses that would affect its share price. So what they would do is they would run the film through through their model. They would look at what the predictions were for opening weekend for that film. And basically they'd play the over-under, puts or calls, they'd, they'd buy them on Thursday, they'd close them out on Monday or Tuesday when opening weekend was posted. And what we found was fascinating is that they had a, at that time, over 90% accuracy rate of calling the direction of the over-under on it. And so there's the old adage of nobody knows anything in Hollywood. 
and taking this concept or this idea from the capital markets of an efficient marketplace, what we actually started finding was that there are things where you can put your ear to the railroad track and go, oh, these two things actually don't go well together. These two things do. And I akin it very often to music, right? You play certain notes together and it makes this very appealing chord and it sounds lovely to the ear, but you've combined these other few notes together and it's a discord and it's offensive to hear. What we started seeing was that there's a lot of similarities that if you put these certain combinations and we look backwards historically, these things were evergreen and were always showing up consistently over and over again. Are you responsible for New Year's Eve and those back-to-back rom-coms with all the ensemble casting with your AI, honestly? Not responsible, no no way, shape, or form. (laughs) It's interesting now how we're starting to look at some of those things and applying those. Again, you being contributory to the producers that we're working with and saying, hey, you know what, we're not the quote unquote creatives on this, but did you know that if you make this tweak, it's still no guarantee that you're going to have this breakout hit. But if we know that this four chord progression is used in a asymmetrical number of musical hits and ones that don't use it have a lower propensity to become a breakout hit, don't you feel you're better positioned by using it than by not using it? So that's interesting. And I do want to get into the LLMs and the AI part of things, but let's talk about the, those edge cases too. I remember you telling me a story about 300 and at which, at which stage do you know when a film is underrated and it's about to be a breakout film? I can't remember exactly what the details of that story were, but maybe tell the listeners what. what Uh, When do you know after opening weekend? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is it one of the odds stacked in your favor? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It it really, listen, it's the audience will always be the final pine, you know, piner on whether or not your work is of the merit that you hoped it would be and respond the way that all anticipations and expectations and data research and comp studies and all of the other work that that you've done. Um, But uh, one of the, one of the guys that uh, works with us at productivity uh, was one of the producers on, on 300. And uh, he always has a story uh, where uh, they were doing a test screening. So they, they had a a rough cut of the film. They bring in a, a blind audience that's never seen the film before, not related in any way, so has no bias. They're coming in, and you've got an actual research firm that's doing the whole Q&A and questioning of the audience. So it's all third party. And so they finished this test screening, and the data analytics firms said to the, the producers, you need to get everybody out of the, the theater right now. So they ushered everybody out, and they're like, and, and they're like, what's going on? Because when they hired Zack Snyder to direct it, he hadn't directed a feature-length film yet. Gerard Butler wasn't the Gerard Butler big star that we know him as today. There was using a new VFX look to it that they'd done some experimentation with, but had not been done. There was a lot of new and different things about this film that weren't a tried-and-trued pathway. So they did this test screening, and... And they, the analysts come back and they go, we scored 100% across all quadrants. Now, what they mean by quadrants is they divide the audience, old, young, male, female, and they test each quadrant to see how the film performs across different metrics in each of those. 
and all four quadrants that came back as a hundred out of a hundred. <laughs> and you know, when you're looking for actionable insights, other than increasing your number of screens that you're going out on, I don't know what actionable insight you can pull when you score a hundred out of a hundred. And so it was, uh, it was really interesting for them having gone through that, that, that process. And that was, because, pre, that was like a screening before opening weekend. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, they still had time that it would have informed them maybe with some final edit tweaks. If there were some things that the audience was bumping up against, it would also inform them as far as marketing strategy how different quadrants of the audience were responding to the film. So where do they want to focus the spend of their marketing dollars, things along those Would they have increased their budget in order to push a little harder given that response? Would, would that make them take a bit more risk? Uh, conceivably, it might. I wasn't there in the room on that one, right. so I can't comment on that in that particular instance. But if you're getting that type of response, you're suddenly probably, you're one of two things. You're either going, what did we miss? You're potentially worried on the other side. What are we missing here? Because this can't be right. In the absence of all unfirmed, we're missing something. Or alternatively, you can sit there and say, yeah, let's press hard. But it's one of those things that is, it, it was from the onset, it was a very calculated risk. The partnership between the studio and the independent studio that we're working together on that, if memory serves, I think it was a $60 million budget between the provincial and federal, this was actually, it was shot in Montreal, coincidentally. So between the provincial and federal levels of government, and there's a VFX enhancement in Quebec as well, I think they got $30 million back in incentive money. So there's only 30 million net cost on that. So split between the two parties on a $60 million film, each of them only had 15 million at risk. So when those numbers came in, I'm sure they felt a lot more comfortable considering all of the things that they had done that had never been done prior on that film. Is there any other industry like that gets that level of subsidy from the government that you know of? I can't, I mind here. That's actually the the interesting thing. And I was talking about this with a a buddy of mine that runs a, a private equity fund out in New York earlier today. Listen, every jurisdiction is different. So we can't spray this across the board, but I, I specifically, as it pertains to Canada, I remember looking at a, a research paper a few years ago that at the time, for every dollar the federal government put into this incentive program in Canada, they were seeing $11 back in real tax revenue. So what's interesting is, again, talking about perception earlier, people perceiving film as being speculative risk when obviously there's a corner of it that can be very conservative the perception that this is a subsidy or that they're offsetting the gross cost of these things, when you start getting under the hood, like I said, seeing $11 back in real tax revenue, I would sit there and say, what other industry for for any incentive program that the governments are putting in that they're seeing that actual type of real return on? And then I remember at the time, provincially, for every dollar they were putting in, they were seeing about a 5 to $6 contribution to GDP. So again, what the net from a tax perspective, I don't know at the provincial level, right. but, but it's beneficial to the government to do it. So let's talk about a uh, different government and how beneficial sure. it was for them. So going back to COVID, this is one of the most, this is where we met, right? Yeah. You're here on island in the Cayman Islands with us. That's how we got to know each other. And during COVID, for those who don't know, the island completely shut down and shut down so hard that there was no COVID cases. There was zero COVID. There was one case when, we, when the, somebody came off from a cruise ship. 
they got them out as soon as possible. And anybody that wanted to come in or out had to quarantine for 16 days. And if you didn't test out, you were there. I have buddies of mine that were there for three, six weeks because they kept on testing positive on the way. It's brutal, absolutely brutal. But if you got in, it was paradise. It was like literally the only enclave on the planet where you, that I know of anyway that had, it wasn't about making a choice whether to mask or not and live the normal life, quote unquote. It was legitimately zero COVID. So you could unmask and everybody, there was no judgment. Nobody was talking about it. It was great. It was paradise and paradise. And so nothing was happening during that, those two years, except for one thing I kept seeing over and over again. My jujitsu, my daughter's jujitsu coach was like, yeah, I'm an extra in this action film and I'm training. Who was the main, the big actor that came? To- we had a bunch. We had Ron Perlman, Harvey Keitel, Nicolas Cage, Ashley Green, Tom Felton. Like that. It was just. We'd be like on any given day, seeing all these actors just walk down the street, which didn't make any sense. And. <laughs> You start asking, oh, yeah, this Canadian dude is bringing production on the island, which didn't make any sense to me because the, the government, we were able to go to zero COVID because the government was so conservative about their measures. So walk us through how you managed to pull this off. What was going through your head? And also as a financier, what, were you, what was your role there? Were you actually a producer in these films? Maybe expand on all that. Sure. Yeah, no, it was an interesting time. And I think like a lot of folks, right, we're we're all looking around the world saying, okay, yeah, how do we make lemonade out of lemons here? This is interesting. Uh, And to your point, here we were on this little tiny chip of a rock in the middle of the the Caribbean that had no COVID. Like I, I remember the first year, Christmas morning, we were at a Christmas morning brunch. I think there was like 600 people at the brunch and we're talking to family back home. Hey, what'd you do today? Oh, nothing. Cause we couldn't have, we couldn't be in groups of more than five people. What did you do? Nothing. Yeah. Listen, my <laughs> biggest faux pas on that note, my biggest faux pas of all time was completely forgetting about what was going on in the rest of the world. And I'm in my daughter's Christmas recital and it's a big, it's the typical gym stuff. And I'm like, I'm going to see my two daughters in my mind. I'm going to see my two daughters yeah. and I'm going to get the hell out. I sit down and it, I was so lucky. The first two acts, it was daughter number one, daughter number two. I was done in 15 minutes. So I started getting up and my wife grabs me, sits me down and says, where do you think you're going? I'm like, our daughter's just falling up, getting the hell out of here. And they were like, she was like, no, it's disrespectful. We're going to watch the whole act. And I go on yeah. my phone and I angrily tweet out, hell is being in your daughter's Christmas recital. And seeing the first 15 minutes and then your wife telling you you have to stay. Oh, my God. That was the fastest delete I've ever done in my life. <laughs> the feedback was like getting shot with, with a pellet rifle. It was like immediate and I realized my mistakes, right? It was just, it was a different world. You were completely separated from it and never spoke about anything again during that period. Anyway, so anyway, yeah, you're at your Christmas party. You could, yeah, there, to your point though, there, there were times where you know, if you didn't turn the TV on for a week, you almost forgot yeah. that it was happening. It, it was surreal. And then, like I said, he ended up having this survivor's guilt almost. It was the luckiest uh, trade we've ever had in our lives, right? The fact that we even had the opportunity. So it's not like we were yeah. smart or it was just pure unadulterated luck. Dumb luck. Yeah. But yeah, no, so we're, the island ends up being COVID free because of the measures that they put in place. They have this very strict, as you said, inbound quarantine. But again, it was still very hard to get in. You you couldn't just come as a tourist. You had to actually have a connection to the island, all of this type of stuff. And we're now at a point where, you know, through through COVID, where 
the industry as a whole has said, okay, we're ready to start things up again, but in order to do it safely, here's all the protocols that you're going to have on production, how you have to divide up your crew into different pods, pod A, pod B, pod C, what you need to do from a testing perspective, what you need to do from a masking perspective, all of these things, right? The Screen Actors Guild had put together this whole protocol list. Now, what was interesting with this uh, was that the cost associated with all of these protocols was adding approximately 20 to 30% to the cost of a budget. I wish I was making that number up because if you go back to our earlier conversation, what's the, what was the general rebate that we're seeing in a lot of jurisdictions? It was yeah, 20 to 30%. Yeah. <clears throat> so that $10 million film now is going to cost us 12 to 13, which again, if we went and shot in Ontario, is now going to net us back down to, say, around 11. So we're, it's still harder for the producers to get to the finish line on it. Now, <clears throat> this is where rule book, books become very interesting. And it's what I was saying earlier at the, the, at the top of our conversation is asking why sometimes is the wrong question. Sometimes it's about asking how, right? How do I construct these particular projects or how do I find projects that will conform in a way where they will still be deemed and score as a quote unquote Canadian project and qualify for Canadian incentives, even though I'm shooting them in an entirely different country. And so that was the question, that was the how question that we put to some of our producing partners and said, how do we achieve this? This is our X that we're solving for. And so they went through all the rule books. They went through all of the Income Tax Act. They went through every stitch of legislation and documentation. And they said, here's how we do it. We find stuff that is written and or will be directed by a Canadian. We'll cast a couple of Canadians. In it. The island being the size and that it is and, and not having any experience in producing film doesn't have a local crew. So we imported an entire crew from Canada. We imported equipment in from Canada. And yet what was interesting, even with all of the logistics costs of importing cash, crew, and equipment, it was still less than the increase in costs associated with the COVID protocols. Amazing. We then How many worked, people did you import? I think we imported, not including cast, because that kind of turned over. But interestingly, we, the cast that came in for our first film, we had three of them ask, hey, do you have anything for us on the second and or third film? We'd like to stay on. <laughs> to your point, yeah. getting to paradise in paradise, because we were also shooting in Q1. So while it's not only COVID everywhere else, it's also winter everywhere else. And we're bringing them to a tropical paradise where on their time off, they can be on Seven Mile Beach or whatever. But ultimately, I think we brought in about 100, 120 crew from Canada filled up the belly of the plane with equipment, shipped another couple of containers of equipment as well, two down. And we were able, as a result, to, to not, not have to pay that additional 20 to 30% that the producers would have had to pay to shoot literally almost anywhere else in the world. So then in addition to that, we went to a lot of local companies who you know, were sitting there destitute because they live and breathe by, by tourists from hotels to food services, to car rentals, to just everything and anything and said, listen, we can't pay you normal retail rates. 
we're not a studio. Something's better than nothing. What can we negotiate here? And we negotiated major discounted rates to what their normal rack rates would be, brought that budget down even more, and then still were able to quantify most of them. I think there was one or two that we couldn't get to conform, but they were smaller budget anyway. Mm -hmm. But we were still able to get them to conform within the rules to have them deemed Canadian content because of all the Canadian crew and the Canadian equipment vendors and the cast and directors and writers that we had on it. We then, on top of it, were able to get some incentive money from the Canadian government as well. What about the local government? Did did you have to include them in any of these conversations? Listen, administratively, the government at the time, and there was a, a couple of key people in the government that we'd pick up the phone when we needed something figured out, and they moved mountains to make things happen. As you can imagine, for them, they're... The thing that Cayman's most known for from a film and television perspective is the firm, which obviously does paint the island in a great light. (laughs) And so they're like, wait a second, you know, this will help us change the narrative about what the island is about in in a more authentic way. I'm like, listen, I can't say that's going to be a most more authentic way. These aren't documentaries. Right. But at the end of the day, we always made sure that there was none of this fake BS about the perceptions associated with us and a number of other islands. And, uh, and so they were super excited to have us here. They, they did everything that they could administratively to make things work. The chief medical officer at the time coordinated with, with the Screen Actors Guild to sit there and say and authenticate, no, there's no COVID on the island, which is what then allowed the Screen Actors Guild to basically give us a free pass on all the COVID protocols because we were able to demonstrate that there wasn't any cases on the island. And, uh, and so... The, the, you know, this industry is, is it takes a collaboration by necessity. I always say you never see a credit of one at the end of a film. You might see a lot of people on screen. We all know that there's a lot of people behind the cameras, but there's even more people behind them that never get credit or we see or hear of on a day-to-day basis that make these things happen. And so it, it was a Herculean effort, but it was pretty crazy. We shot four films back-to-back within a six-month period, which even our insurers were like, we thought you guys were going to drive this thing off the rails. And And these were all in your portfolio or were there new projects? They were projects. There was was a a couple of them that week because we actually ended up subsequently doing two the following year. So we did six over two years here on the island. There was a couple that that were already, we were, they were already on our tracking list, but obviously they weren't purposed for here. So we worked with the producers and we worked with the writers and we said, hey, how do we reimagine this to work within a Cayman context? So the writers reworked segments of the script to apply it, to make it work. Because listen, everyone was sitting there with an option. We could sit at home, sitting on our hands and watch Netflix and watch Tiger King and go crazy as a result. Or we can do what we love doing, which is getting to work and making these things. I can imagine, maybe it's not for this podcast, but bringing 110 members to live together in a hotel, in a fancy hotel in Seven Mile Beach for six months straight in the summertime, I can imagine there must have been a few shenanigans here and there. We can. Uh, you know what? I, I, I don't see a lot of that. I'm not as, as close to that side of it, but I can't imagine that there wouldn't have been. So. Excellent. All right. So why don't we get, uh, move on to your to other ventures? Because you got... This fund, the financing, we covered a lot of that stuff, but you've moved on to very interesting projects from here within that the realm of film and 
marketing. What are you working on today that you're excited about? Oh my gosh, there's a few things. And it's to your point, it's all adjacent. I think anybody who's good at their job has to always be looking forward as, as far as what's coming next. And now again, we none of us have crystal balls, but our jobs are to watch, identify, theorize, and test about what's coming down the pike next. How is what I'm doing today going to be relevant next month, next year, and the year after that as well too? So for us, the things that, that we're really interested in, I don't think are, are really surprising. We're really interested in what's happening in, in AI and the utility around that. We're doing a lot in augmented reality and virtual reality and what's happening in that as well, too. And then this last year has been really interesting, and it's been very validating for us personally with a project that we're working on as well, too, as far as some of the changes that we're seeing in streaming coming out of COVID as well. For example, 2019 was the year that what we say the streaming wars really took off. That's when Paramount Plus finally came online. That's when Disney Plus finally came online. All the major studios finally had their own direct-to-consumer OTT play, which couldn't have happened at a better time going into COVID because we now had more disposable time than ever before. A lot of folks were getting stimulus checks as well, too, because they were being forced to stay at home. So their disposable income J-curved. Cost of living was better than it was today, obviously, with changes in in interest rates. So people, on average, during COVID, were subscribed to, on average, five to seven different subscription-based streaming platforms. They just, you know, that was what a lot of folks did. Obviously not us, as we've talked about, because life was normal, not to rub that in, but... I remember talking with with one of my partners going, this song's going to end. This isn't sustainable because what we were seeing is that people at the time weren't also cutting the cord as was being propositioned to us. Oh, you can cut the cord. You can get rid of your cable and just do this. And it's all you can eat on demand. But we weren't seeing that behavior. And I'm like, something's got to give. And what was happening during that quietly Everyone was poo-pooing it instead of going, no, this this is silly. We saw the slow beginnings of this growth of what was called AVOD or ad-supported video on demand. And it was the way in which people were first talking about Netflix when it first came to market as an internet-based subscription model. Oh no, that'll never work. And you know, here, here we are today. And we started seeing really unique actually not unique. We started seeing new challenges that people were having uh, on a consistent basis. I couldn't find what I'm looking for. What streaming platform was that on? I'd go to Google, but the library had rotated, so I was getting broken links. There was no real solution for real searchability and, and accessibility for my content. I would go down a rabbit hole on, say, Netflix. Maybe I'm interested in zombie style of stuff on Netflix like Army of the Dead. But what Netflix didn't know is that maybe my wife and I are watching Marvelous Miss Maisel over on Amazon. So there was no portability of my of my profile, of my watch behavior. So discoverability of new things that might be of interest to me on different platforms weren't floating and being elevated up. So I wasn't necessarily optimizing or fully realizing the value of some of the subscriptions that I had. <laughs> compound onto that, this price point of having all of these platforms, it was just like, like I said, the song's going to end and and 
I don't know what it's going to look like yet, but there's some problems that we're all having here. And so we started looking at what a solution for that might look like. And I went back to a documentary that we financed a number of years ago called Screened Out. And one of the guys that was interviewed in the documentary, it was like an anvil hitting my head. He he said in the film, he goes, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all these platforms, they're free for you. So understand that you're the product being sold, right? You know, it's not the other way around, right? Facebook is not the product. You're the product. So that kind of was harping in the back of my mind. And I'm looking at some of these other aggregators that were starting to come to market and some of these other things. And I'm like, wait a second, but as the user, I'm still the one that's being sold. That company is either monetizing and selling my data or they're, they are advertising to me. But again, I'm okay. I'm getting the service, but the service is janky. It's clunky. It's not really doing the fulfilling the promise. So we said, what if we were able to address these and, and other issues and make it about the user first and increase accessibility, increase discoverability, really help serve up folks what it is that, that they're looking for in a better way, while also acknowledging that without them as a user, the entire ecosystem is worthless. So also implement some sort of form of loyalty in there as well, too, in exchange for that participation and that engagement with advertising, as opposed to just us milking you as the user, as the product the whole time. So what we ended up creating was a platform that is about to go live in Q1 that aggregates from over 200 different streaming platforms. You can plug your different solutions in, and again, whether it's uh, SVOD, whether it's fast, whether it's AVOD, whether it's purchase, rental, all of those modalities are all within the, the one search engine. And you can curate exactly how you want to search. Do I want to search just my my partners or do I want to search the entire universe? You can really dial it up and dial it down to a way that suits you. Because Rodrigo, how you look for it and the type of content that you want to access may be different than you, Adam, and that may be different than me. So rather than being prescriptive in giving and how the tool set should work, why not be descriptive and say, here are the tool sets that you can decide how best work for you. And what we've also done is from an ad supported basis, rather than saying like versus other ad supported tiers that are out there that said, oh, you're going to get eight minutes of ads for every 30 minutes. Why not give you the ability to turn up and turn down? how much advertising you want to engage with, because now for the very first time ever, you're actually being compensated and rewarded by engaging in advertising. So you now get to choose how much or how little of your time that you want to monetize for yourself, as opposed to for somebody else for a change. So, sorry, the idea of subscription versus free, there's always this, even in ChatGPT4, when you have, right now it's free for everybody, but there is a kind of pay to play. The ChatGPT 3.5, Adam, that continues to be fair game. But if you want some good stuff, it's ChatGPT 4. In this case, you have the ability here to provide basically network television for everybody with the, what they're, at least what the boomers are used to, which is seeing commercials every now and then in one way or another, so that you can get the content that everybody else is getting 
right? Or what YouTube is doing is with advertising. And as you get richer and you become more of a professional and can afford to pay, you can choose to have less and less commercials until you're paying the whole way through. So that it's a dial where the content should be available to everybody, but it's at an expense, either you're being advertised to or you're paying it to get rid of advertising. And that's been our consideration or our exchange, you know, since the dawn of television, right? It's, you know, it's funny, you know, a couple of years ago, this fast moniker started coming along and saying everyone in the industry is, oh my gosh, this is so new. It's revolutionary. It's fast. What does it stand for? Uh, <laughs> free ad supported television. Right. You know, that thing that we had 70 years yeah, ago. Yeah, that's right. That was dead. And you walked up back. television, yeah. you turned it on yeah. and it was free and it was supported by advertising. Yeah. So what's old is new again. And when we look at what's happening in the streaming world, the largest growth segments this year, and, and it started, but it's really just started hitting its escape velocity, has, the growth has been on all of the ad-supported tiers. Even within Netflix and Disney that have both tiers, where their significant user growth has been on the ad-supported hmm. side. And I think there's a number of reasons behind that. Um, but I think you're actually going to see that continue to accelerate you know, for the foreseeable future. And actually, what I think you're more than likely going to see is more and more people converting away from the subscription, even though they have the affordability, uh, onto the advertised. Because what it allows them to do is have more of those services simultaneously as opposed to if you just go on a subscription base and you have to rotate throughout them, being on the ad-supported, you can have more of the services simultaneously. But the big solve and one of the solves that, that we're working for is then how do you have that portability of your watch behavior so that we are getting served up stuff that truly is representative of what you're watching across the entire universe, as opposed to what you're just watching on this narrow silo here versus this narrow silo here versus this narrow silo mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. But then also how we can now employ these large language models to also become more effective with recommendations. Obviously, for all of us on this call, and I'm sure a lot of people watching, this next statement will ring true. Past performance is no indication of future results. It almost feels like that is also very true on a lot of the recommendation engines. When I open up my Netflix and I look at the recommended for you, I'm like, I don't want to watch any of this. Yeah. What is your algo doing that thinks that I'm interested in these things? And I see that time and time again. We, we've spent a lot of time and energy, not just with our data scientists on how we've built our algorithm, because again, it's searching the entire universe, but also with some behavioral psychologists as well, too, as far as trying to understand the question in this case, why? This was a... a not a how question, but this is a why question. Why do I reach for a specific piece of content at any given point in time? And that could be anything, not just a film or a TV show, but also listening to music or reading a book. And again, whether it be a physical book or digitally, content in its most you know, broad spectrum, why do I engage with a certain piece of content at a specific moment in time is highly influenced by context. So in in our industry, the old adage is content is king. And I can't remember who said it, but there was a, an adjunct statement to that. If content is king, then context is God. And understanding the context of where that person is in that specific moment 
will have a significant influence as to why they choose to reach for a specific piece of content, whatever that is. Right. Currently, and that's one of the big things that we're looking forward to bringing to market with our platform. Versus, it's interesting that you brought up the siloing because that's exactly what happens, right? You watch a single, like I go to Disney and I watch a couple Marvel movies and then my daughter goes into my channel and is being recommended nothing but Marvel movies where she wants to watch a teen movie about basketball. I don't know. Right. And then you go to Netflix. It has no memory of any of that, that what you just watched and who's watching and what's important. So that's an interesting thing, depending on what you're watching, depending on what you're subscribed to this, the recommended content is going to be wildly different just because they happen to, to be producing the show that you want to watch and you signed up for that specific thing. So aggregating that is one area. And then talk a little bit more about think about this though, too. That's important. Yeah. Yeah. So on on the context side, because it applies to just what you're saying about about your daughter, that's each of you having separate watch sessions. You're not co-watching. And that that's I think a massively missed opportunity today. Content, I've always said, is the is the great communicator. If you think about history, religion, culture, everything is a construct of story. And, And I don't care if it's paintings on a wall in a cave somewhere grunts around a fire or an invisible beam sent up to space and onto some magical device in your hand, everything in our life is some version of story. And and it has the ability to be the great connector. But the double-edged sword with this mass proliferation of content is that it allows us to break apart into our own little silos and watch what we want to watch in that one moment and not necessarily have to co-watch together like we used to, like we all did growing up. We would watch as a family because you had one, if you were really lucky, maybe two TVs in your house. You all didn't have a separate device that you could walk around all day and be in your own little bubble. So the ability to co-watch is fragmented because it also now becomes very hard to search for stuff that to watch together. I, I say today saying, what do you want to watch tonight is the new, where do you want to go for dinner? The only difference is when you say, where do you want to go for dinner? You'll finally negotiate something. Do you want to go for Chinese? No. Do you want to go for Indian? No. Do you want to just go for a burger? No. Oh, so you do care. You just don't want to make the choice. Right. How about we bring that over to the content side? It's so easy to just say, no, forget it and go off into your separate corners and watch separate things again. Let's take that contextual piece and say, how do you feel right now? Who are you watching with? How much time do you have? And with a very couple of quick contextual inputs, be able to sit there and say, serve something up for you that says, for this specific moment, for this specific group of people, here you go. You know, this is what you guys are likely, more than likely going to be interested in watching in this specific moment. And on top of it, when you come in for your next individual session, it doesn't screw up your recommendation engine because it understood that it was contextual in that moment. In that moment, that it was a family event. It was late at night. You weren't going to watch a Rambo 3 movie. It wasn't going to recommend that to you because, again, content, we talked about the context of what do you want to watch late at night? Something that makes you anxious right yeah. before bed? Probably not, right? So these behavioral factors I thought were interesting. Well, it keeps all of that in its contextual knowledge of you, just us all getting to know each other. Next time we come into a conversation with with each other, we still carry that forward into our next conversation. But it doesn't let that be the only thing that you're talking about, which is what the current recommendation engines do. What's interesting about the last year is that 
I'm looking for a chatbot for a website right now, and I'm getting pitched a lot of the old school chatbots, right? Okay, here you have to design the if this, then that, right? What's the question? What's the answer you want to give? And then if they say yes, do this. If they send, so you, you can spend hours and hours trying to figure out what might be the best at that moment in time where you're creating that if that that flowchart. And then you have the LLM models, which have this ability to really understand what you're saying, contextualize what you're saying, and provide some very quick and useful output. And, and you gave us a demo of the AI, I don't know what you call it, augmented person that looked very real. Yeah. And it was an interesting use case because the questions weren't, what's, what's the highest Rotten Tomatoes film today? You could ask very deep contextual questions like, give me the top four films that had the highest grossing revenue in 1975. And it wasn't like it stood there and, and waited and then provided you some information. It was instantaneous, gave you the data, and actually provided the recommendations. That's, I think, the game changer right there, right? Context, day of, day of the, uh, time of the day, how you feel, all great, but also the ability to interact with a bot that uses large and small language models in order to provide some value. The thing, I always look at things like this, and again, we just had the largest, longest actor strike in history and a big part of the conversation was around AI. Now, again, different use case in this particular instance. They don't want themselves replicated and exploited without being appropriately compensated, which I think is an entirely accurate and fair response to what, what they're seeing as a, the next big threat for them and, and their members. But in all of these things, regardless as to what it is, I always say it's always about the utility, never about the tool, right? One of the big films this summer was Oppenheimer, right? You know. There, there's a couple of utilities to the splitting of the atom, right? One that is wrought with danger and another one that is, you know, hugely beneficial. So it's never, in my mind, about that the, the tool itself. Uh, a hammer can be both the tool that builds you your home that you raise your family in uh, and a murder weapon on the exact same day. So it's always about the utility. And so when we started looking at how can we apply AI and large language models to solving some of these pain points that we were seeing everybody was having. Um, we went backwards a little bit to experiences that we had growing up, going to Blockbuster, because that was always the thing, right? School, Friday, you'd finish school, you'd run down to Blockbuster, you'd pick out whatever movies for the weekend you're going to rent and go home. And you're hoping and praying that that new release is there's still one there, or you'd wait by the Dropbox seeing if it would come in. You remember um, that going and looking behind every one of the covers to see if, oh, and you'd be so excited was, when a new release actually was there, which is a rare, yeah. was crazy. What was interesting now is that if you were one of those you know, blockbuster rats, like I was there all the time, you'd start to get to know the staff and the staff would also get to know you. And if you think about it, they became your recommendation engine. You know, hey, Jimmy, hey, Susie, how is this movie? Because they're there at two o'clock in the morning when nobody else is there watching movies, trying to stay awake. They're seeing stuff. They're seeing everything coming through. And even some of the stores actually had staff recommendation yeah. sections as well, too. So they were the recommendation engine of the day. And so we, we had this whole idea of what if you could cram every single piece of information about every single piece of content ever made? into one blockbuster employee's head <laughs> and just be able to interface and communicate with them just like you would your best friends that you talk to about your favorite TV shows. 
And so we, again, we spent a lot of time thinking about what is our natural process like when we're talking to our friends and our colleagues about content. And very often we get excited about stuff, we talk about stuff, and we share that enthusiasm. And you go home and you get there and you go, oh, I remember a couple of the items. I remember that it was a Jason Sudeikis TV show uh, where he plays a soccer coach. Right. But I don't remember what platform it's on and I don't remember the, the name of the show. Right. We, we have so much information penetrating our, our head every single day. We end up with these memory gaps and it's entirely understandable. So rather than, to your point, it being not binary, but very limited in the, the ways in which you can interact, it was very important that we, we wanted our ability to commune with this AI in a, in a very natural, humanistic way that replicated what our conversations are on a day-to-day life, which is, oh my gosh, what's the name of that movie where Charlie Chaplin speaks for the first time on camera? Oh, you mean The Great Dictator? We couldn't have done that without these large language models that we're seeing today. And so how can we apply this? We're seeing in a bunch of other streaming platforms how they're trying to implement AI into them. And it's it's honestly disappointing, actually. Now, it's great for us, selfishly. But I remember there's one that has theirs. And you hit the button and it says, will I like this? So you click, will I like this? A, I've already had to search for or stumble across it. It didn't help me discover something new or access something that I'm actually looking for. It hasn't looked at what I'm going through from a contextual basis as far as who am I with? How do I feel? How much time do I have? What time of day is it? Any of this type of stuff. I've already gotten to the page of that content and it says, will I like this? I hit it. And then it goes, oh, based on its Rotten Tomato score and the fact that it's a psychological thriller many people have liked this I'm like <laughs> who cares what value have you brought to me this isn't the way that the three of us if we sat down and talked about our favorite shows and movies this is not how we interact about this so why not try to best emulate that humanistic experience of how we exchange and how we interact you know with content and we've gotten it to a point where you could even sit there and say to it Hey, Adam, I'm feeling you know down today. I'm really frustrated. Could you recommend something for me that's uplifting where the underdog wins? And it would probably go out and grab something like, say, for example, the pursuit of happiness and say, hey, man, this will probably be something that that'll help lift your spirits. Hope you're feeling better. Anything else that I can help you with? Yeah. It's probably only going to get better from here, right? It just it, oh it remembers gosh. what you just asked and you can have a conversation. It's going to be an interesting that that was mind blowing to me because we've been involved in LLMs and we've been working on it internally here at Resolve. And you, you can see what other people aren't seeing the value of this. It's not just a toy where you ask the same question that you ask Google. It's it can be a, a very powerful way to just augment your own intellectual abilities and get real context instead of searching what's the best grocery film in 1977 and getting a list of, of choices where you have to click in and sift through information. You're actually getting the immediate response with all the context that you need and then you can continue to interact with it. And it's getting better and better every week. So for content yeah. and content and, I, and Twitter, getting better recommendations for YouTube, it's just going <clears> to... <throat> hopefully improve everybody's life because right now it is very siloed and and it is there's so much content that you're trying to get through 2023 material let alone go back to the good old 
movies of the 70s and the 60s. So very interesting. And well, we're in an hour and a half, an hour 40 now, and we haven't even scratched the surface and all the other stuff you're doing. So we're definitely going to have to have you back. But what's the name of the of this particular app that you're looking to push out in Q1? Yeah, so the the app is UV, so Y-U-V-E-E. And uh, yeah, we'll start pushing it out in uh, Q1 of next year. So we're super excited. And to your point about what's happening and, and where the world's going from an AI perspective, like I said, we invested in our first AI company seven years ago. And the stuff that we were seeing from then, pulling that right through on utility for today, we're super bullish on the ways in which that can be applied and how that helps us identify the content that we want to get engaged with. Because I always sit there and say, the audience is going to be the final arbiter. If they're saying that they want chocolate cake, why are you trying to serve them strawberry cake? It's at at this point in time, colleagues in the industry might not like me saying this, but everything is effectively derivative anyway. At this point in time, I haven't yet seen something that is truly net new, but it doesn't matter because the journey is such a great trip. Yeah. Um, as long as the ride is fun, people will want to get on it over and over again. So bringing these tool sets in is just going to make that just that much more better. So we're super excited. Yeah, that's exciting. We'll have you back because I know we, we got to talk about the augmented reality stuff that you're working on as well, which is super fascinating. Yeah. And then how how actors can benefit from this and as they get older and and get paid for the use of their person. So anyway, lots to talk about. We'll have you back again in a few months if if you're up for it. Where can people find you and the work that you're doing? Is there any place you'd like to lead them to? The best place is probably productivitymedia.com for our core fund. And then don't ever hesitate to try to reach out on LinkedIn as well, too. Happy to connect with folks there if uh, they've got any questions or or just want to further the conversation. Amazing. Thanks, William. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Adam. Very generous with your time. Yeah, very interesting and different. Yeah. What we usually discuss. Refreshing. All right. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) Remember to like and subscribe. We work really hard to get guests as interesting as William onto our podcast. So the only thing we ask is that the many of you watch, very few of you actually like it and subscribe. It's a give it a second, press those buttons, and we'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.